Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I have as my guest, Dr. Terry Levine. She's a best-selling author of The Conversion Equation. She's a business consultant and speaker. Terry, welcome. It's good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Could you give the audience about a minute on your background, please? Sure thing. So yeah, I've been a business consultant for about 27 years. Prior to that, I had seven of my own different, totally different businesses. I created them into multi-million dollar businesses and sold them. And then I started my business consulting company. And now I help other people create multi-million dollar businesses. And believe it or not, working like I do about two hours a day, making a massive impact and income. Two hours a day. That sounds like pretty much everyone's nirvana. So tell me this, why is it that so many businesses fail to become effective and efficient and the owner ends up working 18, 90, 100 hours a week? Well, first of all, they're distracted. They're distracted by things like social media and spending hours a day on social media platforms. And then they're behind their computers, typically, doing content creation. That's totally unnecessary and thinking they have to create all of this content in order to truly get their name out there. And then the third thing is they really don't have systems and processes. So what they're doing is running a business and not running a company, which means they're not sitting in the CEO chair. I'd go one step further, actually, and I say they're running a job. Um, yeah, I would agree. They bought a job. They didn't create a business. As a result, they are a bottleneck, and their chief fire officer and chief arsonist mm. all in the same. Yeah, it's good language, and it's true. And I think people become entrepreneurs because they don't want a job. And then I agree with you, Marcus. I see so many of them that end up actually having to work more hours and in many cases make less money. So it's it's a broken thing. I, I always like to ask this question, entrepreneurs or salespeople, which is what is it you want your role in sales or as a CEO founder to give you in life? And very often I just hear on oh, money or freedom, but they've never really thought it through. So when you're working with your clients, I'm really curious to understand before you go into the development of systems and eliminating friction and uh, them as a bottleneck, what process do you go through to understand the, the true motivation behind why, why they are in business? So I wrote a book years ago with Stephen Covey, and Stephen Covey talked about start with the end in mind, which is yeah. not the way most people start a business. So we sit down and talk about why are you doing this? What is the end? Do you, you want to create a dynasty for your family? Do you want to create a legacy to pass on? Do you want to have a retirement plan? What is the reason? And it's not because, oh, I have a passion to you know, sell XYZ or do XYZ. No, a business has to be more than a passion. So I get them to the point of understanding why they're doing what they're doing and then we work backwards from there. Fabulous advice. And again, if you are not working backwards from the end game, then chances are you will take the very long scenic route, uh, which normally involves ravines, cliffs, and sinkholes. So, okay, let's then spend a little bit of time digging into marketing in particular. I know that you have a wonderfully radical perspective when it comes to marketing funnels. So let's hear what your thoughts are on them. <laughs> I'm very vocal about this. So I think the worst thing that has happened to marketing, and, and I've been in business 43 years, is the concept of these funnels where you go online and somebody says, get my free book. It's no free book. It's free plus shipping. And typically you can go get the book on Amazon or Barnes and Noble and get it cheaper than they're charging for shipping. Then you get the book and then it says, no, wait, that's not what you need. You need this. Oh, no, wait. And it keeps going. That is a horrible way to do business. My company is called Heartrepreneur for a reason. We do business authentically, transparently, and with integrity. The concept of funnels is anti that. 
I say to people, I don't know if what I have can help you. Let's find out. And then if I think I can help you, I extend my hand and offer the one thing that I provide. I don't provide 20,000 things, one thing, and that's it. So the whole funnel concept to me is not ethical marketing. Right. This now speaks very close to what's central to my philosophy. I fundamentally believe that every buyer deserves to feel safe whenever they are engaging with any seller ever. And 40 years ago, when Milton Friedman, who is basically the PR for Satan himself, sold the idea um, that every business should be set up to deliver shareholder value. And this speaks to Henry Ford's point that a business that's set up solely to make money is a bad business. Business is there to serve the customer. We exist because of, not in spite of, the customer. Business is there to serve its people. And there's a very good reason, because highly engaged people deliver great customer outcomes, which means customers are successful, and they come back, and they keep spending, and they bring their friends. And it should serve the community. Profit and revenue are a byproduct of doing those things well. So talk to me about that for a moment. Well, first of all, we're very aligned in that way. Your business has to be heart to heart. And what I mean by that is, can you truly authentically help a customer? Does your product or service give them the result, the goal, or the outcome they want? And if the answer is yes, I feel it's your duty and your obligation to extend your hand and offer it. And I just want to give an example. So let's say somebody traveled a great distance. They come to my home and they made fresh lemonade. And I say, I made fresh lemonade. You might be thirsty from your trip. Would you like some? That's the same way I do business. I extend my hand. If they say yes, great. If they say no, I don't manipulate them, pitch them or overcome their objections. Maybe they're not thirsty. Maybe they don't like lemonade. I am in business as we all should be to serve our customer. And I can only do that if I listen to them, if I find out what they tell me they want or need, not what I choose to sell, what they are asking for. And then I authentically just make an offer and I value the customer. I don't care if somebody spends a dollar with me. I treat them as if they spent a million dollars because they exchanged their hard-earned money for something that I have. That's the golden rule in business. Couldn't agree more. So this then brings us to the uh, question around manipulation. And this starts, I believe, with a conversation around intent. I was recently mentoring someone in my sales of force for good community. And she was having some problems because she's using technique, but At the end of the day, her objective is to sell a meeting or to advance the sale or to make the sale. And when I asked her, so help me understand something. Is that to serve you or is it to serve them? And the light bulb went on because for the first time, she's been running this business for about a year. And for the first time, she realized that she was projecting selfish intent. and. I think it's really important in your marketing, in your content, in your selling, in uh, your demeanor, in everything, every interaction with a potential customer, a potential partner, a potential supplier, that you have that authentic objective to see how it can serve them before it will serve you. And the byproduct of doing that well is you end up with customers who love working with you because. You've qualified them well, and you haven't taken on a customer or strong-armed them into buying something that they shouldn't have bought. So when we start looking at traditional marketing, let's go deeper than the obscenity of that type of manipulative bait-and-switch type of uh, funnel. Let's go deeper and explore what you mean when you say traditional marketing doesn't work. So just to piggyback first on what you said, you know, People are using all kinds of sales techniques, neuro-linguistic programming, and you know all of these closes, the penny close, the alternate close, the Ben Franklin close. I just want to make a comment to piggyback on what you said, which is surrender the outcome. It is yep. so not about you. 
Just listen and see if you can help. And if you can help, it's your duty. It's your obligation as a business owner to say, hey, I have something that can help. So just wanted to cover that. So traditional marketing is advertising at people. I'm going to get my message at you. I'm going to drop it in your email. I'm going to Facebook message you. I'm going to get you on LinkedIn. I'm going to do ads and I'm going to get it in your way, get it in your way. And people don't respond to that. We are overwhelmed with messages. We live in a distracted society today. And we are not interested in anyone's messages. We basically pay attention for eight seconds. And after eight seconds, you may as well be talking to your goldfish because they are not listening. Traditional marketing today does not work. And there are alternatives. Well, again, to pick up on something, that uh, the first thing that you said, I have never listened my way out of a sale. Mm -hmm. I have talked my way out of plenty. You have an obligation to sell to someone who needs your help. And you must not use technique as a weapon. Technique is there as a shield, and it's as a way to help diagnose for both sides that you are right for them and they are right for you. And if you as a seller realize that you're not right, you have an obligation to withdraw gracefully and potentially refer them on to someone else who can help. Now, the whole concept of broadcast, broadcast advertising, broadcast media, is anathema. Advertising, by and large, is total anathema. When you look at the statistics from Google, they have a 1.91% click-through rate. Facebook, 1.61% click-through rate. The majority of adverts served up on Google get one click or less And uh, those two organizations make $265 billion a year on advertising that gets one click or less. The stalker adverts, which I find the most offensive of all, the ones that follow you around remarketing, they have a 0.035% click-through rate. So the majority of advertising and outbound marketing is just an unwelcome interruption. And I'm really curious to see how companies adapt to the removal of the third-party cookie. That's going to be really interesting because now they have to get opt-in and they have to use first-party data. And it's going to be a very, very interesting couple of years. Your thoughts? Yeah, I'm already seeing some things. I'm already noticing some things changing. I I think what people are doing now is scrambling. That's what I see. Like, well, I was using ads and now my ads, either they're not effective or they're not even getting approved anymore. And there's no one to really contact to help you if your ads don't get approved. And so all of a sudden, I I see companies scrambling because they don't understand how to do organic marketing. So my whole business, this is you know my eighth, all of them have been done without advertising. And they've been done organically. And we literally have a conveyor belt of qualified prospects every single day. I wake up in the morning. I call it reverse marketing. I give value. I give content. I give value. I give content. I give away my best stuff, my life's work in my Facebook group. So what happens? I don't have to go hunt for people. They raise their hands. They come to me. I had one this morning that said, I really think I need your help. Can I work with you? I don't know. My team will chat with you. We'll interview you. We'll see if we can help you. So it's value, 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 education, education, education. And you don't have to spend a dime on marketing. Uh, I agree. I mean, I haven't spent uh, a penny on marketing in 17, 18 years. And what I've realized, and I was always taught no free consulting. But again, you can spill your candy in the lobby. If you do no harm to yourself and you're delivering masses of value. And um, I have a steady stream of people. I've got a waiting list uh, of people who want to work with me because I give stuff away all the time. And the thing that's been really instructive for me is when I find my competitors stealing my stuff almost word for word, which I'm delighted about because it raises the bar because I know another thing that you have a real issue with, which I have as well, 
which is crappy advice from crappy advisors who know nothing, and they peddle a lie. And so what that does is, first of all, it raises the bar. And secondly, it forces me to be even more creative in my the value that I offer. So I'm curious about how you would advise somebody to assess whether an advisor is even qualified to help. I'm fascinated by this. I'm glad we're talking about it because every single day I have a new client who comes to me and says, well, I just invested 25000 here, 13000 here, whatever. And basically, they not only have made no money, they have been spinning their wheels and wasting their time creating content and not communicating and giving value. So the issue I have these days, and I've had this my whole career, is that people are not willing to guarantee what they do because they know that they're not an expert. So my question to people is always this. You're going to hire a mentor, a strategist, an advisor, a coach, anyone to guide you or take a program. Are they willing to stand behind it? Do they guarantee that if you implement, you will get results? And if not, will they give you your money back? I give back money. Very novel to many people. I guarantee a 200% return on investment. Now, you have to implement. It's not a magic pill. If you implement and my process fails and hasn't with 6,000 people, if it does, I failed you. I will give you all your money back plus write you a check for $5,000 because it didn't work for you and I should have taken you as a client. This is the first question I ask people. Whose products, programs, services, coaching, mentoring, who are you buying from and do they stand behind it? And if not, run. That's the first thing. Well, the way I've structured my fees is that I take a small retainer So I want skin in the game, but my payout comes from them achieving their outcome. And it's outcome-based pricing, which is the guarantee because otherwise I don't get paid. The challenge is always, how do I help my clients become wildly successful? I'm not interested in mild success. If I help them grow less than 300%, I'm deeply disappointed. That means that I haven't really thought through how to help them. or I took the wrong client on. Right. One other pointer I wanted to just mention, and this is another sort of bug of mine, is there are a lot of people out there with the internet who are these false experts, these pretend people, right? So I won't use the person's name, but many, many years ago, a guy came to me and he wanted to hire me and he told me that he was homeless. I knew that I saw him recently on social media in front of what looked like a castle and either a Lamborghini or a Ferrari. And I said, oh, very funny. I did. I said, very funny. And I laughed. He said, no, I am actually homeless. And someone has given me the money to hire you because if I can't figure out how to make my business work, I'm going to still be living in my car. And I went, I've seen you on social media. He goes, oh, I live in California. It's really easy to take photos like that. I said, well, who are the people you want to help? <laughs> this was what got me. I want to I want to work with people who want to make a million dollars. I said, you're talking to the wrong person. You are not a real expert. When you have figured out how to make a million dollars, go help somebody do that. When you're living in a car, Be authentic and go help someone with something you can help them. And I see this, Marcus, it gets me. I see on the internet every day these false experts. And sadly, I've hired some of them. Many of my clients have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars with these experts. So sorry, I just had to jump in. I, I I think it's important to raise that because the training industry is effectively a cabal. You know, you look at the actual completion rates. I was speaking to Tom Matson, and uh, Tom runs these huge uh, JVs with people like Chet Holmes, Tony Robbins, all those sorts of folk. And the gold standard for completion of online training is 3%. So all these people buy these courses, they don't complete, and they certainly don't implement. And they go from course to course because they're all hoping for a magic bullet. There is no such thing as a magic bullet. You have to implement systems. You have to have structure. 
you need to have a strategy and the strategy starts from the customer. It doesn't start with how much you want to earn and the Ferrari that you want to drive. You have to build everything from the customer. So you need to have customer insight. You need to map out the customer journey. And very few companies ever really get to understand the real customer journey. They see the little pocket that they happen to touch every now and again. And you know, it's like the McDonald's employee sees the customer journey as being someone driving up to the squawk box, placing the order, tapping their card, and picking up their food. But there's the whole backstory of the kids fighting, screaming they're hungry, piling them into the car, World War III breaking out, getting stuck in the queue, then yelling they're hungry, placing the, uh, the order with you. As you're about to place the order, they change their minds. You try and put the order through. The squawk box sound quality is terrible. The person on the other end doesn't speak English as their first language. You're not entirely sure that you're going to get the, uh, the order right. The best bit is where you tap your card and you pay your money, uh, ironically. Then you've got to worry about whether they've actually fulfilled the order correctly. Mm -hmm. uh, meanwhile, on the drive home, one of them's got to fry up their nose. You've got vomit on the seat, and now you've got to get rid of the packaging. That's the customer journey. But the irony is that most people will start from their product or themselves and their company. And no customer ever woke up and said, you know what I want? I want a water bottle. There's a reason they want the water bottle. No one ever woke up and said, I want a marketing funnel piece of software. There's a reason they want it. And people pay for outcomes. They rent the outcome. And until you understand that about your customer, you're never, ever going to be successful in business. My pal, Simon Bone, has four levels of seller. You have the pill pusher. Um, and that's someone who just sells a commodity. And it, there's no value there. So it always descends into a conversation about price. Then you have the pseudo expert. And people come to them because they want knowledge. And by and large, the knowledge is rehashed and out of date and never worked in the first place. So very quickly, it descends into price. Then you have the hero seller. And the hero seller, people come to for their strength because they want to be defended. And these are, um, I'm not going to name names, but they howl on Wall Street, that kind of thing. And then you have this enormous gap. And then you have the sage seller. And people come to them because they want the wisdom to rub off. They, they actually want something that will sustain. So in terms of creating that personal brand as a sage seller, how do people do that? So in my experience, number one, it does have to do with being authentic and being transparent. I have all my clients do something before they do anything which is go survey your exact target audience and ask them this question. If I could give you one result and only one result, what is it you really want? And until they come back to me with 50 or more of those responses in an Excel spreadsheet or a Google sheet that we then review and see a theme and a pattern, I say, you don't know if your customers want this. And we're not going to offer somebody anything that they don't really want. So we narrow down. I'll give you an example, teach by example. Many years ago, when people were starting to charge, you know, high ticket, which I've been doing forever in the coaching and consulting industry, I said, I'll teach people how to do that. So I went ahead and was going to do a course called Get High Paying Clients. But I do what I teach. I surveyed my audience. I said, if I could teach you one thing, only one thing that has to do with getting more from your clients in terms of income, what are you looking for? I had hundreds of responses and some of them, a lot of them, had the strangest word in there and it was get hot, H-O-T, get hot paying clients. I'm like, I don't know what that even means. I've never heard of that. I followed what they said. I got a domain, get hot paying clients. I ran a course called Get Hot Paying Clients, and I enrolled over 1,200 of those people into the course. And people said to me, how did you enroll that many people? <laughs> I listened to what my audience said they wanted, and they wanted this, their exact words, and they wanted my wisdom. I didn't have to sell them. I simply used their words and said, hey, you asked for this, I put the course together, here it is, and that's how it worked. So my point is, 
You've got to find out what your target audience wants. Don't ask me. Don't ask Marcus. Ask them. Number two, you've got to listen to what they want. And number three, don't start selling anything until you actually know what they want. And then you literally don't have to sell. You just have to reach out and they will say, yes, that's the advice, the wisdom that I want. Does that make sense, Marcus? Uh, Absolutely. Again, one of the most fundamentally important rules in selling is have your prospects surrender the order. What you don't do is you don't take a hostage. You don't strong arm them. You don't bully them. You don't brutalize them. And you don't pressure them. There is no need. The market is so vast. If you're selling into maybe you've got a, a market of six accounts, And that's it. Yes, you've got to perhaps adapt a little bit. But even there, listening to what your customer wants is critical. And don't just turn up. I think one of the most telling statistics that's really very depressing is 40% of the complaint tickets that get logged on uh, IT companies, uh, customers' uh, service uh, registers are generated because engineers built the product. Mm -hmm. It's not true if you build a meta, better mousetrap, people will queue up outside your home. They won't. If they don't have a mouse problem, they're not going to queue up. And so you need to understand who your customer is. What are the jobs they're trying to get done? What are their struggling moments? What progress have they been able to make without help? And what help do they need to make further progress? And what next? But you can only understand that if you actually speak to and listen to them. So again, another bugbear that I have, and maybe you can help me understand why this is, is marketing departments and marketing professionals, and I use that term as loosely as I possibly can in terms of the definition, why is it marketing don't speak to customers? You know, it's very interesting. I was president of a natural healthcare company for about five years. And what I saw was, Operations has an agenda. Sales has an agenda. Let's just sell the customer. Marketing has their own agenda. And I was also vice president of marketing for a large firm. And they don't match. So in marketing, it's like, let's create all this stuff and get it in front of people and try to get their attention. That's just what I talk about. That's not how the world works. So I'm going to market at you. I'm going to get this stuff in front of you, hopefully your potential customer. That will move you into sales, and then hopefully you'll buy and you'll be part of our business. Marketing doesn't truly, in my experience, take time, number one, to survey customers, number two, to understand customers. And the role of most marketing, I've worked with huge firms like uh, General Electric and Merck and Ford. The marketing departments just see getting content out there, whether it's offline or online. Let's go create a presentation. Let's go... If they're not taking time, it's not just research. It's not empirical research. It's actually sit and talk to customers. To me, that's really missing in business today. Well, executives are guilty of the same thing. My view is that for every five sales meetings that a company has, a manager should be on um, one of them. And for every five a manager goes on, a senior executive should be on as well. If they're not having that frequency of touch with customers, then they are out of touch. But one of my favorite business leaders is a lady called Amy Brown. And she runs a beautiful company called uh, Authentics. So Authentic with an X at the end. And they do customer listening using AI. And they listen to 10 billion conversations a year. And they listen to the unvarnished, unfiltered feedback from customers. And one of the interesting bits of payoff is a 40% increase in the sales productivity simply by listening to the customer and realizing how bad the navigation is on people's websites. Because most of the sales team, or 40% of the salespeople's time was taken up trying to solve problems because people couldn't find it on the website, uh, which is crazy. And this is really where I think there's another huge um, gulf between what customers want and need and the way companies set themselves up. In the last 40 years since Friedman decided to peddle the great lie about shareholder value, customers have become forgotten inconvenience at the end of a long chain of abuse. So you have marketing doing their bit, the lead generation team doing their bit, sales doing their bit, 
customer success, for want of a better definition, doing their bit. Operations, professional services, whatever, all doing their bit. And at the end, there's this uh, inconsequential customer. And sales is encouraged to be transactional. And that, I think, is a huge loss to everybody because what you end up with is massive levels of customer churn. And a 15% churn in customers means that every three years, you lose 50% of your customer base, which means an unnecessary tariff on your marketing and top of, uh, I'm not going to use the word funnel, top of the lead generation pipeline where uh, you're having to replace 15% of your customers every year just to stand still. The economics of that doesn't make sense. Right. I will share something with you. I've been in this consulting business for 27 years. I have, my clients are called client family members. So the first priority in my life is my blood family. And the second priority in my life are my client family members. I have had client family members for 27 years. People have been with me 27 years. I've helped them start a business, create that business, sell it, start another business, or take a business from a concept to now doing millions and millions of dollars and positioning sometimes them to sell the business or transition it. Here's where I think business owners don't get it. Just because a customer is coming into you for $50, let's just say, You have to look at the lifetime value. And again, teaching by example, many years ago, I wrote a book called Guerrilla Marketing for Beauty Salons with Jay Conrad Levins. And I had a woman call me and uh, she wanted one hour of my consulting and she was so frustrated at the time. She said, you know, the nerve, it's a Friday afternoon at three o'clock and this woman calls and says, I'm 20 minutes away, I need a haircut and and we're closing. And she said, "I, I said, we're leaving. It's the summer and we close early. So the woman was really upset. So let me ask you a question. How long would it have taken to cut her hair? She said, I don't know, 15 minutes. I said, so what's the value of the haircut? She goes, like $50. It's worth it. I go, no, let me ask you a different question. When somebody gets their hair cut, how many times a year do they come to you? She said, about 10. I said, okay, so now we know that that customer was potentially worth 500 many years did they come to you? She said, oh, at least 10. Okay, go ahead and do that math. How many people do they refer? She said, maybe two. I literally had her do all the math and said, you didn't just say no to a $50 sale. She went, oh my God. And I think people need to remember that. Whoever buys from you, don't care what they spend, treat them as a client family member. I don't want to spend my time hunting for new people. I want to focus on my client family members who I love and adore. I want to nurture them, take them under my wing, and truly help them. So I want people to really digest this. I don't look at people as customers. I don't do business transactionally, and you shouldn't either. You want to embrace people. I don't care if they bought an ebook for $2. They are very valuable, and I look at the lifetime value. I hope people really breathe in that lesson, Marcus. Lifetime customer value is so important. And it's the average order value times the average frequency times the customer lifetime times the referrals. And if you do not have that formula at the front of your mind every time you're engaging with a prospect, then you're missing out. And um, when you prospect for new business, you should be prospecting for a customer for life. And um, my pal Barnaby Winter has a lovely way of referring to customers. He refers to them as paying prospects. And that's a really clever shift because if you really wanted that business and you were thinking each time this is the lifetime value and you treated them as if, um, it's a bit like when you're dating. When you first start dating, you wash, you spruce yourself up, you dress nicely, you pay attention, you listen to what they say, every word that drips out of their mouth, you're hanging on. 25 years in, you end up looking like me. And so the, the, the challenge is, you, know, you still need to maintain that courtship. And it also means that you need to stay in contact. And one of the things that really frustrates me about sales is the way Sales has been broken up in sort of Adam Smith's 
version of the pin factory. Someone stretches the wire, another one snips it, another one hammers out the head. So you've now got all these different functions within sales. And from the customer's perspective, there's no continuity. You then have these speculators and gamblers purporting to be investors. They come into a perfectly fine business that is obsessive about looking after the customer. And now they're focused exclusively on growth at any cost. And they're obsessive about new logo acquisition. So they start to neglect their customers. So they suffer from a churn problem. And because they've got this growth target to hit, now they have to steal from next month's uh, pipeline to fill this month's quota. So it creates more pressure. So you end up getting this turnover of uh, salespeople and burnout of managers. And then the customer sees the fourth new account manager um, in a year, and they're thinking, what the hell's going on? So all of that I see as part of marketing, because anything that touches the customer is marketing, isn't it? Oh, 100%. Everything and anything that touches the customer is marketing. And I think we have a big problem in broken marketing systems in many, many companies, probably most companies, honestly. Absolutely. Okay. So you are the fairy godmother. You can wave the magic wand. If someone was starting a marketing operation from scratch in their company, what would you suggest that they start with? Well, obviously go and speak to the customer and find out the one thing. Uh, From there, what do they do? So that's where I actually would like them to understand what I call the conversion equation. That's the topic of the book. Because that's what most, in my experience, most marketing organizations, agencies, marketers do not understand, which is really how this process works. It's a four-step process. It's proven. And I would like to see them actually learn the process because otherwise... They're going to be doing it wrong, in my experience. Can you give us an overview? Of course. So I talked a little earlier about most companies trying to get their stuff in front of the customer, and you get eight seconds and the customer is turned off. So the the four steps, before I give them, let me just explain. I'm also a clinical psychologist, you know, psychology. We as human beings typically are operating in downtime. And my best example of this is I'm sure that you've driven somewhere at some point, driven home or whatever, and gone, I don't even remember going through that light, right? Because it's a repetitive thing that you do and you're in downtime. Well, when we're scrolling on the internet, reading our email, watching television, going for a magazine, it doesn't matter what it is. Our human brain is in downtime, which means we're not paying attention consciously. You need to understand that to understand the equation. So the first thing that you have to do in marketing is you must interrupt. That's step number one of the conversion equation, interrupt. Because if you don't interrupt your prospect, and that's why you have to know who they are, what's important to them, what their problems are. If you don't interrupt them, they're not going to pay attention to your message, right? So, you know, the other day I was on Instagram and there's just, sponsored ad after sponsored ad and I'm clicking hide, hide, hide. And all of a sudden, there's one that interrupted me. Why? It's something that's important to me and spoke to me personally. So the first step is interrupt. And the way you do that is with a headline that basically sorts, sips, and separates. Says, hey, you, if this is you, pay attention. It's not you. Go about your business. Go back to downtime. So now you have their attention because you've interrupted. After you interrupt, instantaneously, you better keep them engaged. Or guess what? (laughs) They're back in downtime. So how do you engage? You tell them something interesting, factual. You raise a question. You show them that you understand that. And they're saying, "Hmm, let me pay a little more attention. The third thing that you do, and this is what I don't see people doing either, is educate them. Most people start pitching them right away. Now you educate them. You give them some facts, some data, a case history, some value, something that says to them, wow, this person or this company is very is very smart. Let me pay more attention. They stay in uptime. Then the fourth step, which most people do out of order, is you make an offer. That's the extending your hand. Low or no risk 
offer. Hey, if I can help you and you have that problem, here's the offer. If all of marketing would follow the conversion equation, because I've implemented this in 6,000 businesses in 19 different countries, in over 400 kinds of industries, it works every time. It's a proven equation. However, most people in marketing are doing it backwards. So please, if you're going to either start a marketing agency or you have one, learn the conversion equation. Every business needs to understand this. So in order to create a headline that captures someone's attention, it needs to be timely, relevant, and valuable. It needs to be all of that and It needs to kind of, not kind of, it needs to show them that you understand them and their problem. Like, are you frustrated with? I know that you're stressed with. Are you challenged with? So all of a sudden they go, yeah, that is me. And yes, I am. Um, You know, do you have this issue, whatever it is? And it also separates the people who are not your audience. So they don't waste any of their time. Okay. And then the engagement piece. Certainly, facts are very powerful, statistics very powerful, but story is really key in my experience. And the skill seems to be in being able to create a story in a very, very concise way. Justin Michael is a master at this. He's just written a book called Tech Powered Sales, and he uses what he calls tips of the spear. And they're 18-word emails, up to 18 words, maximum of three words in the headline. And it's 18 words because that's what shows in the preview pane. And what's really interesting is um, the potency of a very short story that creates pure curiosity and pure envy. And the ability to be able to do that, it requires time and practice and effort. But if you can get a good headline, and a good two-line story, that's 90% of the battle won. But you have to practice. So I'll give the audience a clue on how I do it. So interrupt is your headline. Engage, think of engage as your subhead. I use a tool, it's on my Google browser, and it's called Co-Schedule. Co-Schedule. Yeah, I use Co-Schedule. Okay, so we have a headline analyzer. And I write what I think is a very powerful headline. And then I go and I look at co-schedule and I see this co-schedule thing is powerful. And I will tell you that that tool has immensely helped me and my clients write more engaging headlines and subheads. So we're interrupting and we're engaging and we always check our headline and our subhead with that tool. I always struggle with co-schedule because um, I always struggle to get power words. So what are power words? So let me just give folks a clue. One of the things you can do, and we've done this, is you Google power words, and there's this incredible spreadsheet of all kinds of power words. And it it literally sits in a file on my desktop. So if I'm in co-schedule and I'm low on power words, I go, let me pull some power words up. A power word is a word that is strong and kind of gets the attention of your audience. Um, So it could be any kind of a word that your audience resonates with and responds to. It could be fear. It could be struggle. It's not necessarily as much of an emotional word as something that gets them out of downtime. So I view a power word more as wake up, pay attention, wake up. And again, for all of these, whether it's a power word or an emotional word or common or an uncommon word, things that co-schedule checks. My little secret is I've Googled all of these. There's PDFs on them. They sit on my desktop. I'm writing a blog, writing an article, doing a live video. I want my headline. I come up with what I think is good. Co-schedule says, you need more of these words. I go, oh, let me pull some. And there we go. That's my little secret. Excellent. Okay. One of the things I have found with those lists is they're very good for consumer, but they're not necessarily geared towards B2B. Are there any good tips that you can give in terms of developing more uh, B2B power words? So I have that same spreadsheet that I've used. That's just the routine power words. It's PDF. And I've used that to create B2B headlines for clients as well. 
for me, it doesn't change. They're the same kind of words. And, you know, if I go and look at the power psychologically, the power of words, I'm also a speech language pathologist, they're the same words resonate no matter what it is. If it's business to business, business to company, it really doesn't make a difference. Human beings are triggered to respond to certain words. So don't vary, in my experience, don't vary those power words, use them. I can speak to General Electric and get their attention with those words, or I could speak to a physical therapist starting a, a business tomorrow with the same power words. Okay. Okay. So what are the blind spots that you see founders and executives foul of when it comes to their marketing and in particular, getting away from talking about themselves, their company, and their products? I always tell my clients, I don't want to hear you say I. I don't want to hear you say we. Um, I have a client, a, a young gentleman, he's doing phenomenal. And every time he writes or speaks, he says, you all. And I said, that's not who you're speaking to. So if I'm doing a video or if I'm doing anything, I talk to one person. I say, you. No one also wants to hear about me. I go to people's websites. It's like, hi, my name is James Smith. I'm the founder of blah, blah, blah. And here's my story. I didn't come for your story. I came to your website because I think there's something in it for me. So if you don't interrupt me instantly, I'm gone. This is really important. As an owner, as a founder, everyone, and I'll I'll share this story, everyone in your company, I don't care if you have one person or hundreds of people, thousands, every single person is as important as you are. So I went to work for a very large corporation years ago as their vice president of marketing. And the day that I started, they handed out this lovely little book on their vision. What a lovely vision it was, written by the CEO. Beautiful vision. My very first board meeting where the CEO was there, this person was nothing like that vision. And <laughs> was yelling at someone in the room in front of all the rest of us. And I said to myself, hmm, authenticity? No. I teach client family members, and I'll give you an example, a hospital. Uh, I said to the CEO, we're making a major change. And I said, you're going to have a town meeting. You're going to invite everybody. You're going to have the people who cook, the people who watch the floors, everybody. And she said, why would I do that? I said, because the company isn't you. It's made up of them. So we had a town meeting. And I said, and you're not going to speak. She said, what do you mean? I said, your job as the CEO is to listen and to hear. So you're going to tell them, this is our issue. This is what we're up against. What would you do if you were the CEO? I will tell you, not only did we make changes that really worked well, she had lasting loyalty from that. So my best advice in summing this up is don't be about you, be about we, and more than that, be about the customer because you're not important. Couldn't agree more. Um, yeah, I always teach my clients and my salespeople, ego is the enemy. You need to leave your ego behind because the moment your ego is hooked, then you end up in the psychological model of the drama triangle, where you're either playing the victim, the persecutor, and the rescuer. And any one of those positions is going to fire off the amygdala. It's going to trigger freeze, flight, or fight. And you're going to end up either paralyzed or the customer will. You'll end up in a fight or you'll end up uh, with one or other of you fleeing. And you only have to look at the fact that 80% of the average salesperson's working career is spent chasing people they should have closed or disqualified on the last call. If you fix that one problem, that's a 400% increase in productivity from your sales team. Just let that sink in for a second. 400% increase in production from your sales team. Even if you are one of those eejits out there who thinks that selling is a numbers game, which it absolutely isn't, then you could get four times as much productivity from your sales force, which means that you're just going to be spending four times as much time in front of customers. And 
again, when we look at the statistics on this, there was a study that Dave Brock did. Now, this was pre-COVID. I suspect the numbers have dropped dramatically. The average salesperson only spends 12 to 21% of their working time in front of customers. Mm. So now you're spending 79 to 81%, uh, 88% of their time not speaking to customers. Now, that's a travesty because even if they haven't, they're not transacting, what they should be doing is listening. They should be doing their research. So when they turn up, they are well-informed and the questions they ask are insightful. So again, um, I'm really curious to get your take on marketing and research. What advice would you give to organizations um, in terms of the effort and time and money that they put into researching before they try and engage with their audience? To me, you shouldn't do anything until you research. And I'm a big proponent of focus groups. I've used them for many of the companies that I've personally started up. We did a, a company years ago where we're in the right place at the right time, not repeatable. We did zero to 88 million in this company in less than six months. And people, it's crazy. And people ask about it. I'm like, well, number one, we were the right business, the right place at the right time. Number two is nobody really knew this. But before launch, for six months, myself and my two partners, every single day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, for six months, we did focus groups. We heard from thousands and thousands of customers. And then we went And we put together what they said we wanted. Our marketing used their words, their outcomes, their exact quote. Everything was about them and not about us. So what happened was we did our marketing, started our quote launch, and people were vicariously living through these other people saying, oh, yes, that's something I would also want. I'm like that person. And that's why that business grew so fast. In this consulting business I've been in for these 27 years, I had 30 clients in 30 days. And a lot of people were struggling to get people. They go, what did you do? I said, well, a year before I started, I started focus groups and I started interviewing and surveying. So I just simply said, hey, I heard you. This is what you want. Here it is. Sound familiar? (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Terry, we're coming to the top of the hour. So let's start wrapping up. It's been fascinating. Thank you. You have a golden ticket and you can go back and advise the idiot Terry, age 23, when you were invincible, you knew everything. What one bit of advice would you give her that you know should have probably ignored? (laughs) To be open and curious. To be open and curious. I had never run a business, run a company, and somehow I thought I knew better than anyone else. And not only wouldn't I listen to advice, I wouldn't seek advice. So I struggled in that first business for like six months. I mean, I had high overhead and I didn't know what I was going to do. I couldn't, I was a speech language pathologist. I couldn't get patients, doctors had to refer them. And then after six months of struggle, I said, I'm going to stop talking and I'm never going to be the smartest one in the room. Today, even though I've had all these multi-million dollar businesses and successes, I'm not the smartest one in the room ever. I have learned so much from our conversation. I'm open, I'm curious, I listen, and I'm a continuous learner. Fantastic advice and absolutely endorse it 100%. What, what was it that triggered your realization, that moment of clarity? So I was struggling, 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 and I had to get doctors to refer. Nobody would refer. And I was in this one doctor's office, and he started telling me how to approach other doctors in the area. And I guess I talked over him. And he said in a very authoritarian voice, young lady, you know nothing about business. I've run a medical practice, and I've lived in this community for 20 years. So if you want to have a successful business, I'm quoting him, shut up. (laughs) And you know what? We became the best of friends. He was my biggest referral source for many, many years because he woke me up and I was so grateful. I went and thanked him the next week and said, everything changed in that conversation. And I, I still think about him and thank him. Interestingly enough, two of the great names in sales 
today, Anthony Anarino and uh, Victor Antonio both had that experience. And there is a rule here. Your customers are your best teachers. There is nothing better than a damn good drubbing from a <laughs> And there are two acronyms, wait, why am I talking? And there's the less polite version, STFU. <laughs> and that should be tattooed on the eyelids of every single salesperson and every owner of a business. Amen. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. So, Terry, tell me this then. What would you recommend people read, watch, listen to in order to really get to understand their customer and understand human beings? So uh, the first thing that I would say is you can pick up any book that has to do with the psychology of selling. Robert Cialdini, who wrote a lot of books on influence and persuasion, really teaching you how to be manipulative. He's teaching you to understand. He, he uh, wrote the forward for one of my books, Sell Without Selling. And I started reading all of his books after that. So that's one thing I recommend. The second thing I recommend is I also ask your customers, what do you listen to? What podcasts, what TV shows, what magazines, what books are you reading? The third thing is find someone who is doing business in a way you want to do it. So if you want to be more authentic, if you want to be more genuine, whatever it is, find someone who's doing that and then not only hire them and invest in them, but truly read anything they write, whether it's a blog, whether they have a podcast, whether they write articles, follow them on social media and digest their information. I always pay attention to people that I find who are like-minded and I start absorbing everything of theirs. And so I do really recommend that. And I'm still going to give you one other thing that may sound a little odd. There is a phenomenal book called The Presence Process. Now, it doesn't have to do with sales and marketing, per se. It has to do with learning to be present and in the moment. And I think one of the problems that marketers and salespeople have, and even folks running their own companies or organizations, is that they're either thinking about the thing that happened in the past, I would have, could have, should have said that or done that, or thinking about the future. What's my goal? How many people can I get? Who can I prospect to? Instead of just being here, being here now, listening to who's in front of you now, treating that customer as gold now. So and this, this is by Michael Brown, yes? That's it. I was about to say that. Yes, that's it. Fabulous book. Wonderful. So that's added to my uh, reading list as well. Well, um, for those of you who listen, you'll have heard this before, but one of the top five books that I have ever read and every one of my clients, every one of my salespeople, every one of my managers, CEOs is, this is mandatory reading, is Just Listen by Mark Goulston. Um, if you don't read that book, you are a fool, uh, mm. as far as I'm concerned. It's the book that I wish I'd written. So what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? So the biggest thing that I would like to do is figure out a way to clone myself. And I'll explain that. We've had about 600 very qualified prospects show up for us in a, like this last month and a half, almost two months. I can't take 600 people into my consulting practice the way we're currently set up. I do have 25 consultants worldwide. Get another me. And I don't know what that'll look like. I don't know if it'll be a partnership or some form of collaboration. And so I'm just keep putting that out to the universe, like figure out a way to duplicate me because my goal is to serve and help more people and not to have to say, hey, I'm sorry, I can put you on a waiting list. So that's what I would like the universe to answer for me. Do you have a, an intentional strategy around strategic alliances? I do, yes. And I, I haven't had the right person show up yet. I've had great strategic alliance partners and we've done some really valuable things together. Not the right person to really kind of be with me in the COC that entrepreneur. Okay. You might want to check out Adam King, Simon Severino, and uh, Tom Matson. All three of those, if they're not the right people, they probably will know them. Thank you so much. I just took notes on all of them. Thank okay. you. I'll, I'll, I'll introduce you uh, on Thank LinkedIn. You. Thank okay. you. How can people get hold of you? 
So the very best way and where I'm most active is in a Facebook group. It has about 6,300 business owners. I have my life's work for free in there. And I go in and do free training live every single week. And that's called Heartrepreneurs with Terry Levine. Heartrepreneurs with Terry Levine. And if you want to learn how to create a conveyor belt of qualified prospects, that's at TL, like Terry Levine, TL. Webinar.com, TL Excellent. So I shall add that to the show notes. Dr. Terry Levine, thank you. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Marcus. Thank you. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you know someone who would benefit from the um, conversion equation, then please recommend them the book, but also refer them to this podcast. And if you feel the urge, go to Apple or Google Podcasts and leave an honest review. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.